Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. And today, we're going to Crater Lake and talking about its origins. Many of you have been there, I'm sure, and know that it looks like a huge bowl was made from a meteor impact thousands of years ago. But that's not what happened. If you haven't seen the video, take a few moments to watch it. Our conversation will be so much more interesting if you do, and you can find it in the show notes or on crosscut.com. But for now, we're going to have a blast. Knut, you and your crew went to Crater Lake to do this story, and the title of the video is The Mazama Blast. First of all, what struck you about Crater Lake when you got there versus the the photographs, the beautiful photographs of the um, National Park? And what does Crater Lake have to do with Mount Mazama? (laughs) Well... When you get there, you know, you, you drive up to essentially the top of a mountain. Um, it's forested. And you come to a place where you can walk right up to the rim of an enormous volcanic crater. And, it, I mean, it looks like a meteor landed and created a giant hole And this was sort of a reverse meteor because it was stuff coming out of the volcano. Mount Mazama is what we call the remnant of this volcano. How big was Mount Mazama? How tall was it? How big of a mountain was it? It was over 12,000 feet, estimated to be over 12,000 feet. So the top four or 5,000 feet was either blown off or collapsed into the crater. But the the explosion, the blast, the Mazama blast was absolutely enormous. So if you remember the Mount St. Helens eruption or you've seen the images of that in 1980, that was nothing compared to Mount Mazama. Uh, Mount Mazama's blast was probably about 50 times greater. And then the result is this fascinating phenomenon where um, the cone collapsed, created this five-mile-wide crater, and then over time, it filled with rainwater. And so you have this gorgeous mountain lake. It's one of the deepest lakes uh, in North America, sitting at an altitude of about 7,000 feet. So it's kind of like Mount St. Helens, which has a huge indentation carved out of its side because of its explosion. Bazama just completely blew its complete top off, and what is left of the mountain is the opposite, the negative, the depression of everything that, that fell and it right into the throat of the volcano, right? Right. And so it's, uh, yeah, in, in essentially it plugged up and then, and then turned into this beautiful lake. It has this feel of primal creation, When did this happen? The Mazama eruption occurred in the fall of whatever year it happened, about 8,000 years ago. And how do you know it was in the fall? Yeah, evidence from the Mazama ash layer had indicated what season it was when the ash 
the main ash fall occurred. But we know it was about 7,700 years ago. Yeah, it's closer to 8,000, I believe, is the current estimate. It's changed a little bit over time. And uh, one geologist told me, U.S. Uh, GS geologist told me that it was the largest Cascades eruption in the last 600,000 years. Now, you know, the Cascades are are full of volcanoes, right? I mean, from start to finish, um, Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, um, you know, many others. And um, to me, the interesting thing about it is that it, it, it occurred within the amazing range of human memory. It seems like we know a lot about the blast, but how? Well, um, geologists have studied it. I mean, it, it was fascinating from the moment that sort of Western scientists became aware of it. To indigenous people in the area, it was considered a, a sacred place. And there were witnesses. There were humans who witnessed and survived. And they've talked about it for the last 8,000 years. Many indigenous people within that circuit who um, were affected by the eruption have oral history about it and have described some of the events leading up to the main eruption, such as smaller eruptions that occurred, smoking and, uh, and ash spewing out. And then they also tell of this kind of cataclysmic eruption that darkened the sky for days and rocks were falling like rain or snow. We know the, the Klamath people who live um, south of the mountain, but close to it, described uh, their elders just told stories about the people having to run into nearby lakes to escape. It was a while before settlers in Oregon stumbled upon it. Um, the indigenous people did not tell them about this amazing place. They kept it secret for a while. And scientists have been studying it basically ever since. And so a lot is known about um, how it erupted, what kind of eruption it was, the scale has been estimated. Um, and they estimate those things based on how much material came out of it. Well, of course, they've been able to figure that out because as geologists and archaeologists and others have worked, they have found this ash and debris strata uh, all throughout the region. You know, the, the ash was spread very widely and very deeply. They can tell that there was, you know, a massive main eruption that lasted some time. Uh, there were additional uh, elements, but that main ash layer still exists in many places. The ash covered much of Washington and Oregon, Idaho, it's in Montana, British Columbia, Alberta. I mean, it just blanketed the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, anybody who digs deep enough uh, can come across that ash layer. 
you know, Nick, Nick uh, Zentner, Nick on the Rocks, you know, he has a little segment um, that he did. There's an ash layer you can see that's on a cut along I-90 between Ellensburg and Vantage. This is not just any ash. This is the famous Mazama ash from southern Oregon. You know, it's, it's four inches deep, this ash layer. After 7,000, 8,000 years, it's, it's four inches deep. He, in contrast, in the same area, the Mount St. Helens ash layer is a quarter of an inch deep. So you can see there was a really different scale. And this ash layer shows up in all kinds of places. If they're excavating, say, an ancient bog in, uh, in Redmond, where uh, that was an early populated site thousands of years ago, they can see that people were there before the ash was laid down. And they can see that not long after it was laid down, people were there again. Um, with their tools and uh, and that kind of thing, and so it's become this this uh, fairly consistent, reliable marker throughout the region uh, to identify timelines: what was here before, what was here after. And uh, it's rare that something like that is so distinctive and so uh, pervasive throughout uh, a region like the Pacific Northwest. You said that the ash layer was 14 feet thick in, in some places. In some places, yeah. And is that an extrapolation of the compression that we know happened since then? Yeah, and uh, estimates, I think, of the amount of material that was ejected. That is how the kind of scale of an eruption is determined. What is it spewing forth and how much? So they, yes, they've been able to sort of estimate in certain places about how much ash landed there. You know, often with the Cascades eruptions, the ash goes east because the prevailing winds are often from the west. This went kind of to the northeast, which is why southern British Columbia and um, Alberta were hit particularly hard. And they found traces of ash in Greenland. I'm, you know, I mean, this stuff went a long way. That amount of ash, as far as it went, must have had considerable effect on the environment and ecologies. What do we know about that? Yeah, there's been some research done on that, but not as extensively as I, I would like. <laughs> I would love to see more. But I found a really interesting study from Alberta and archaeologists working up there, and their research indicated that I think somewhere around four or five inches of ash, which is a lot, wound up in the southern, the prairie landscape of southern Alberta. And that there were First Nations peoples there, and the prairie was populated by game, particularly bison, buffalo, and that that ash layer indicates that campsites or uh, places that were known to be used by hunters stopped being used, and the the buffalo herds moved away. 
that essentially it was a zone that um, disrupted the plane's lifestyle for maybe 100 or 200 years, that there's a gap between the ashfall and when people resumed hunting in that area. So that's quite a, a major displacement uh, for a long period of time that it would have taken for the, the prairie to recover. So bison couldn't find something to eat? It was all covered? Yeah, presumably, yes. That they could, the, the grazing land had been covered up, so they had to move further east where um, the ash hadn't fallen so hard and they could still feed. So the people that subsisted on that game had to move with them. They described it in a, in a paper that I saw, or that, that event was described as a paleo disaster. <laughs> and if you extrapolate that to, not necessarily for the same reason, but if you think about that kind of ash fall in other parts of the Pacific Northwest, it undoubtedly created a lot of problems, even if temporary, for people in the same way Mount St. Helens did for people who lived particularly in eastern Washington. Is there any evidence that Mount Mazama, which it's, it's funny to even speak about Mount Mazama because there is no Mount Mazama, is there? <laughs> Well, it's what we call the remnants of the volcano, which is still a mountain by any <laughs> any definition. Uh, it wasn't named until much later. And Mazama is an old term for mountain goat. And the Mazama Club was the equivalent of the mountaineers in Oregon. And so it got dubbed Mount Mazama. So, Is there any evidence that Mount Mazama may erupt again? Is it still active or has it done its thing? Well, it's it's done its thing for now, but I think you can't you there is is deep down there is still volcanic activity in that area. Evidence of that is um uh cinder cone island in Crater Lake. So you have this gorgeous kind of pristine lake, but then you have this kind of mysterious little mini volcanic island poking up. Wizard Island. Wizard Island. And it looks like something out of uh, a video game fantasy island. Um, and uh, yeah, that's evidence of more recent volcanic activity post the big one <laughs> that occurred 8,000 years ago. So could it erupt again? Yeah, it probably could. But will it, you know, and will will it happen in any kind of time frame that's relevant to us now? Yeah, probably not. There are other volcanoes that people are probably more concerned about, more dangerous. Such as Mount Rainier? Such as Mount Rainier. I mean, Mount Rainier is certainly, you know, active if relatively sleepy. <laughs> um, but the potential for Mount Rainier to erupt is real. The potential for um, catastrophic damage to the surrounding area, infrastructure, people. Yeah, it's very possible. It's considered a dangerous mountain just because of its proximity to so many people. I mean, they're, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that live and would be affected by 
uh, mud flows, lahars, um, floods, no, not to mention lava <laughs> and ash. Ever since Mount St. Helens, I've never looked at Mount Rainier the same way. And I'm wondering, after this trip to Crater Lake and reacquainting yourself with its makings, how you look at Mount Rainier now? Well, like you, uh, Mount St. Helens changed my perception of, of Mount Rainier. I remember as a kid, we used to go camping at Mount Rainier, and I remember at some point asking my mother, you know, is it going to erupt? And she said, oh, no, the mountain is sleeping. It's dormant. It, you know, there's no worry about that. And uh, when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, I actually was, I called my mother and I'm like, see, you know, there is, this stuff does happen. And of course, you know, most kids view of a volcano, you know, my, my seven-year-old grandchildren draw pictures of volcanoes all the time, you know, and it's always <laughs> spewing lava and being very dramatic. You know, we tend to think of Mount Rainier as very serene and kind of this mother mountain there on the horizon. But it could, you know, do real, real damage. And um, there are all kinds of ways that that could happen. But we know the history of mudflows and lahars. Uh, we know that they follow river valleys. It could easily, uh, you know, do great damage to places like Tacoma or the Port of Seattle other places where debris and whatnot could flow uninhibited. I just try to get my head around the length of time that this section of the earth, the Cascade chain has been active 600,000 years. Well, it, and lo I mean, longer than that in the sense that the, you know, the chain has been aborning for, you know, millions of years. And there have been plenty of other eruptions, just not as big as, as uh, Mount Mazama. You know, you realize when you've lived here a while and with recent scientific discoveries, with events like Mount St. Helens, with earthquakes that we've had and perspective earthquakes, we know a lot about the Juan de Fuca Fault and how that is affecting the mountains, how that is, um, you know, created earthquake hazards here that are sort of on a scale that have not been seen in a long time. Um, you know, it wasn't until I think the 1980s that they discovered this big fault that runs from Bainbridge Island to Issaquah right under South Seattle. And we built a big city on top of it without, without knowing. I think it just is part of life here that you, you learn about these things. And then you also kind of learn to put them out of your mind. And then occasionally you get a reminder that nature operates on this epic scale. Mazama blew up nearly 8,000 years ago. 8,000 years ago puts you in, in early Egyptian times. That is relatively recent to us. In, you know, that is, that in geologic time, 8,000 years is not a lot. 
um, in human terms, it's a lot when you think about these oral histories coming down 8,000 years and turning out to be pretty validated by the science that came much later. You know, you realize that while that's a long time for humans, it's a relatively short time also. You know, kind of reconciling those things about what happened long ago, but what also could happen tomorrow, you know, leaves you in this quandary where you, you get maybe 100 years on Earth, you have to live your life. You know? And are you going to worry about the volcano? It makes the calculations for earthquake preparedness um, a little problematic, doesn't it? <laughs> well, Should I prepare or not? What are the chances? I mean, one of the things we know is happening is um, people are expecting at some point the Juan de Fuca fault is going to shift in such a way it will create a massive earthquake off the coast of Washington and Oregon, and it will probably create a massive tsunami um, on a scale at least similar to what happened we know in 1700. And, you know, because of climate change, but also because of these dangers, People are putting up um, towers that people can run to and um, moving cities or villages back from the coast in preparation. I mean, you, you do what you can, but you can't do everything. And plus, you don't even know what the, the thing is you're preparing for. What is Crater Lake now? So it's, it's a national park was one of the very first national parks it was designated. It's in the first five <laughs> national parks, along with Rainier and Sequoia, Yellowstone. You know, and I found it to be a place that doesn't disappoint. Uh, I remember the first time I went to Mount Rushmore, I thought, these little heads, they're not as big as I was expecting. I was thinking something on a different scale. Crater Lake is like, wow, this is like, more than I imagined. It's, it's heavily touristed. We were there in the summer, and uh, you know, we had to do a lot of filming where we were basically dodging, <laughs> dodging tourists, you know, trying to find uh, the right lighting, which was difficult when you have something that's like under, under the sun all day long. And, and, then, and then you discover, oh, the lighting is only good if we come back at four in the afternoon and catch it from this angle, you know. So there were some logistical. Your golden hour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, some logistical challenges. And it's the rim is high above the lake, you know, maybe what, a thousand feet high or something. And so there's a very steep view down. You know, the sky when we were there was almost cloudless. The water is this gorgeous, deep blue. And uh, the first time I visited Crater Lake, I stayed in the lodge and I got up late at night and went out. And, you know, I mean, talk about a sort of spiritual experience. Um, the night sky is reflected in this absolutely still lake. It's like a giant mirror of the solar system, the galaxy. That really stuck with me. ¶¶ 
As far as you know, what is Crater Lake now to Native peoples? Well, I think it's still a very spiritual place to some folks. It, it used to be a, a very exclusive place. In other words, indigenous people in the area did not want to tell white settlers about Crater Lake. And it was actually stumbled upon by a prospector, I think, at one point, who then sort of took, took that news to the outside world about what's up there. And eventually it was spotted and put on the map. And so, but I think, I think it was considered a place where people would go on different kinds of spiritual quests or people who were at, say, the level of a shaman or something would spend time up there. It certainly has become something very different in uh, now in terms of their roads. You drive up, you park, you can stay in a in a lodge, you know. And a lot of people go up there and go hiking. They go skiing. It's used um, year round. Before this trip and making of the video, when was the last time you were at Crater Lake and? How has your perspective changed since the last time and this trip? Yeah, so I think the last time I was there was about 25 years ago, um, so late 90s probably. And um, I, was, I was just in the neighborhood kind of, and so I decided, oh, I should go up and see Crater Lake because I've heard about it. And, of course, it, was, it blew me away in, just in terms of the scenery and— I knew it was the result of a volcanic explosion, but I didn't know much more than that. I just, I think I stayed one night. I, I saw this spectacular sky reflection at night, which really impressed me. Yeah, and then I got back in the car and, and drove on. It wasn't until much later that I was talking with an archaeologist who mentioned the Mazama layer. We were talking about an archaeological site. And I said, Mazama layer, what's that? You know, and he said, well, that is a volcanic eruption that left this large ash layer that's so extensive and so durable that we can date that layer, you know, tells us where we are when we're doing an archaeological dig. And then he, then he said, you know, it's the eruption that created Crater Lake. And then it was like, oh, Oh, wow. You know, and that got me interested because I was, you know, writing a lot about Northwest history and archaeology at that point. And so I was determined to kind of get back there and sort of dig in and find out more about that story. I've been thinking about that for years. This was a chance to do that. Hi, it's Knute Berger. Well, that's it for this season of Mossback, but we're already hard at work on the next season, and I've got some great stories I'm excited to share with you all. If you have any feedback or local history ideas you'd like to share with me, please send your thoughts to knute.berger at crosscut.com. I love hearing from listeners, and I regularly share these stories in my weekly Mossback Den newsletter. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next season. Thanks for listening to Mossback. If you'd like to see all the episodes from this season of Mossback's Northwest, you can find them at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. 
The video series is now in its eighth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every Thursday night through November. This episode of the Mossback Podcast was produced by Seth Halloran, and the story editors were Sarah Bernard and Sarah Menzies. Our executive producer is Sarah Menzies. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And check out the show notes if you want to get in touch or learn more about each topic we cover. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly Mossback newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode. Mm-hmm.